Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you this morning as your children. We, we, we would love to learn more about you this morning. No matter where we're at, Lord, whether we've been walking with you for 70 or 80 years or whether we've never professed Jesus as Lord, um, I pray we would learn something here this morning. That we might be changed this morning by something we hear. By something you speak to us. So give us ears to hear, not just the words I'll speak, but much more importantly, the words that you are speaking to us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're about to start a bit of an odd three-week sermon series um, that I decided to do a couple of months ago, and is actually, as is the way with these things, obviously God has been leading us, and we're going to end up having a conversation about something that is actually quite pertinent for us. Um, about about two months, three months ago, somebody asked me the question, basically, why 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 are you a Baptist? Like like what is it? Like why why did you go to Baptist church? No, it wasn't an accusing question. It was a just like I I don't understand. Like what is this? And I kind of told my story, and my story is basically I'm a Baptist by accident. I didn't choose to be a Baptist. I got saved in a Baptist church, so that kind of made me a Baptist. And then we went to a Pentecostal church because that was our kind of nearby church. And then we moved to Canada. We went to Pentecostal church there because it was our nearby church. And the barrier, the thing for me was, that, well, they loved Jesus and they were doing good work, good mission. So that was kind of, that was it. And then when we came back to Scotland... Uh, 11 years ago, I was offered a job by a Baptist church, and it was entirely inoffensive, and so I went to a Baptist church, and that's pretty much how I became a Baptist, by accident. Absolutely no thought given to it whatsoever at all. However, uh, the, the last church I was in kind of insisted that I get accredited by the Baptist Union, which is a good thing to do, and so at that point I had to think, well, wait a minute, do I actually like being a Baptist? It became a question I had to answer. So I got to give the answer to this person that was that. It was, why did I become a Baptist? And um, the question then grew, well, like, so what makes your church a Baptist church? And um, that's really the question that has driven what we're going to do with this series. Because the reality is most of us come here, and a lot of you will be here for exactly the same reasons I am, which is it was, well, not that I'm here, but you're the same reasons I am a Baptist, by accident. You know, it's maybe your local church, it's maybe, it's maybe this is the church you've always gone to, but you've never really given any thought to this kind of Baptist thing. And it's actually going to be important for us. We've come to a point in our church life where we're talking about things, boring things like constitutions and all that sort of stuff, but it does bring up all sorts of questions about other issues that we want to think well about, and we need to, first of all, realize where we're coming from and who we are. So we're going to talk about that, why it matters to us to be Baptist. But I want to be 100% clear about something. I have no interest in being a Baptist if it means I have to be against something else, okay? Because we have billions of brothers and sisters faithfully loving Jesus, and they've never thought of going to a Baptist church. They go to all sorts of other churches. And so we want to honor them and those in our city, and even in our little part of the city here in Portobello. So it matters not if someone is a, an Episcopalian 
or a charismatic, or a Pentecostal, or a Methodist, or a Presbyterian. I'm, I'm, I could keep going for a while, but I'm running out of steam with that. But you get the picture. We are never here to criticise our brothers and sisters in other spaces. They will think differently to us on some matters. And we must be humble and concede that we might be wrong sometimes. It's okay to have our conviction, but we're, we could be wrong. Or they could be wrong. That's the way it's going to be. But it doesn't mean that we don't have our own convictions and we can't express why we believe what we believe. And it's really that that I want us to look at over the next few weeks. Why do we believe what we believe? It is important that we are able to think well of ourselves but also to laugh at ourselves, right? And so this week I was reminded of some Baptist jokes. So I felt obligated to tell us some Baptist jokes as we begin. I actually only, well, I have three, but one of them is really long, so we're going to piss it. Um, How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Fifteen. One to change the bulb. Five for all the committees to decide what kind of bulb we're going to put in it. Look, I didn't say they were good jokes. Similar theme. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change! (laughs) We'll leave it at that. Um, They weren't good, but anyway. Um, Where do we begin when we think about what it means for us to be Baptists? Well, in 1908, the Baptist Union of Scotland adopted... what they call a declaration of principle Um, and really what that was for was to describe what all the churches belonging to the union held in common as Baptist churches in Scotland and I actually think it's really good and so that's what we're going to spend the next few weeks having a look at what does it actually say we'll ask the important question is it in the bible because hey that matters um, and then we'll see what it might mean for us as we live this out. I know you can't read that probably very well. We have a bigger version of each of the individuals coming up. I'm going to read it to us. This is what the Declaration of Principles states. That the Lord Jesus Christ, our God and Saviour, is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And that each has liberty, each church sorry, has liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer his laws. The second says that Christian baptism is the immersion in water into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of those who have professed repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again on the third day. And number three, that it is the duty of every disciple to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to take part in the evangelization of the world. That's a pretty good summation of what it means to be us. And it has profound influence on how we not just practice church, but how we live today. It's also fair to say that if we took number two out, and we will deal with number two, don't worry about it. But if we took number two out, I suspect that just about every Christian denomination could say one in three are also true of us. Okay, We, we end up having some discussions about what number two is. But 
Nearly every other denomination also thinks that it's a good idea for disciples to bear witness to the good news of Jesus. And most of them will say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the sole and absolute authority in all matters <laughs> pertaining to faith. But they don't write them down this way. They don't say this is who we are. And we have chosen to do that for over 100 years. Um, as this, and the union has been together for 150. Today we're going to look at this one, the first one. That the Lord Jesus Christ is our God and Saviour. Is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice as revealed in the Holy Scriptures and that each church has liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer his laws. I'm not going to parse every word in there. You will be pleased to hear. We're not going to look at how every single word comes out. But we're going to look at a couple of the key concepts and what they mean. Um, I have four points I warn you, the first one is by far the longest, so please don't freak out when I've spent like half, what should be about half my sermon on the first point. And you're going, oh man, I thought you said we were having lunch, it's going to be dinner. Um, so we won't be too bad with that, I hope. The Lord Jesus Christ is our God and Saviour. This is the beginning, the centre point and the end point of our faith. Jesus, Jesus, and more Jesus. We have no other reason to gather than Jesus. None. We, we can never, we, if, we, if we are ever gathering for any reason other than Jesus, then we have become some kind of social club, no longer a church. We should pack it in, close the doors, sell the building, move on. That's we must first and foremost and always be about Jesus. And actually this little statement, Lord Jesus Christ is our God and Saviour, makes three statements about God and then the very next part about Jesus, sorry, and then the very next part makes a fourth one. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That means he is above all things. He is over all things. He is over us. We are not the lords of our own life. He is. It calls for obedience. This isn't just a statement, but to say Jesus is Lord is to posture our lives in such a way that we say he demands our allegiance and our obedience. That straight away reorders everything. Completely reorders everything. I am not the top of the tree. You are not the top of the tree. Jesus is. And it's to him that we owe our allegiance. He is God. Now, you can skip past that because if you've been in church any amount of time, you go, yeah, okay, move right next. There might be no more profound statement than to say, Jesus, a man who I can prove to you walked on the earth about 2,000 years ago in Palestinian Israel, performing miracles, doing all sorts of stuff. I can prove to you that he was nailed to a cross. The statement to say that that guy wasn't just a good man who did good things, wasn't just a prophet who taught well, he was God himself. It's the most profound statement because if you believe that to be true, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Everything has changed. Radically shifted. The world doesn't look the same anymore because it says God became human. And at that point, something clearly has shifted. So we must never skip right past that. Jesus is God. And then we say, and Savior. And that matters because he didn't just become God. 
as a human and then just walk about teaching us how to live well and then float off back to heaven again. No, actually, he saved us. He saved us. It's, yeah, one of the, there's a, there's a kind of theology that floats about there. And I say a kind of theology, it's not really a theology, it's just some people good thinking, but it's bad thinking. Is, is that what it says? It says something like Jesus was a good example to us and we should try and live like he did and the world would be a better place if we just did what Jesus taught us to do. Well, that, that's not necessarily untrue. But if that's all you think about Jesus, then he didn't save us from anything then there's nothing that he has done. His life was largely futile apart from his teaching. But actually his whole life, his birth, is profound because just as we've said, God became human. His life is profound because he modelled something of what God looked like. He told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus was modelling to us what God looked like. That was profound. He was able to overcome the temptation of the devil. That was deeply profound and in some traditions has a huge impact on how they would talk about salvation. His death, we're going to take communion later. We remember that in his death, he accomplished something. It wasn't a purposeless death. He overcame sin. He overcame death. He overcame evil. But he didn't just die, because otherwise, no. He rose again. He rose again, and again, we're back to one of those things that, you know what, if that's true, nothing's the same. Because dead people don't become alive again. Right? I mean, this is basic biology. Like, dead is dead. Right? Dead. In the ground. Dead. Done. Toast. Becoming food for the worms. Right? That's, That's what happens. Like, that's it. Except, Jesus rose from the dead. That's, that's the central proclamation, I think, of faith. Jesus rose from the dead. And, and if someone wants to talk to me about, should I be a Christian or should I not be a Christian, this is the point to come to, right? This is the, this is the point of faith. Because I don't think it takes any faith whatsoever at all to believe that Jesus was a real person, right? Because that's, that's provable. There's no faith in that. The faith is in, did he rise from the dead? Because do you know what? If he did, nothing, nothing is the same. Everything has changed. But you know what? If he didn't rise from the dead, then Paul tells us, you and I, we're wasting our time. Like, we'd be better out, eat, drink, and get merry. That's, that's what Paul says. So that's the crux point. Did he rise from the dead? But, and it's really interesting, because normally we stop the story there, right? We say, like, you know, he was born. If we managed to go this long story, because too often we... We condense Jesus down to just his death or just, you know, Christmas will just do his birth, that kind of thing. But if we've kept to this part, there's another bit. What's the other bit? He rose again. So he's died, he rose again. No, but we've skipped a bit. The ascension, yes, yes, the ascension. A bit that we miss out, and it's because it happens on a Thursday, I think. Ascension day is a Thursday, so we never talk about it in church. Plus, most pastors go, they say, oh, I don't know what I'm doing with that. It's a bit complicated, that. But it's part of the story. Jesus ascended in his humanity, at least in his fully realized humanity. And in all of that, in all of that, He was accomplishing stuff. 
Not just saying, here's a nice way to live, but saving us. And there's a huge question of what he was saving us from, and we don't have time to get that into that today. But we, there's no doubt death needed dealt with, evil needed dealt with, sin needed dealt with, our alienation from God needed dealt with. And in his birth, life, death, resurrection and ascension, Jesus has dealt with all of that. And so for us to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is our God and Saviour is deeply profound. Because it says we do not see the world the same anymore. It is altered fundamentally. And then it says this, and I love this. I hadn't really noticed this before until I looked at this this week. And it says... uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ, is our, our God and Saviour, is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice. And I remember thinking, what the bus? Wait a minute, he's the sole authority. I thought, oh, wait a minute, is that the Bible has sole authority? I thought the Bible had it. No, it's Jesus that has authority. And the Bible itself tells us Jesus has sole authority. One of the most famous passages in the entire scriptures... One that's been bugging me recently. I keep coming back to it. Little things keep jumping out. I'm going to read you from uh, Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So there's only eleven of them, okay? When they saw him, they worshipped him, right? So Jesus has died. He's risen again. They've seen him a couple of times, it seems, depending on how we read the other the other passages, but he, they've, they've encountered Jesus. They, they're aware that he has risen fully. They can touch him. They've shared food with him, but he's also not quite exactly the same as you and I because he's not bound by things like locked doors. He can appear in rooms with locked doors, and it seems he can travel great distances very quickly. I have no idea why that's the case. It just is that Jesus' body on the other side of the resurrection behaves in slightly different ways than ours do, but it is still a fully physical body. That's the important part. So, and they worshipped him. And I'm not surprised, right? If I knew somebody who had been dead and was now fully alive, I think I might worship them too. It's a pretty cool story, right? There's this lovely little line. It says, but some doubted. There's only 11 of them there, right? And some of them doubted. I love that. It creates space for all of us because I, there's just about enough of us in here to say, I know some of you are struggling with doubt right now. That's okay. Jesus doesn't seem to be terribly offended by it. In fact, they went to the trouble to put it in the scriptures that some of them doubted. This guy that had risen from the dead, he's standing right in front of them. That's a thing. Anyway, none of this is part of my sermon, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. All authority belongs to him. All authority belongs to him. That changes things changes things and so we need to be careful and this is a challenge to us to me and to us as a church that I think if I'd asked you what is the sole and absolute authority in our church I think many of us might have answered the Bible in good conscience right with the intent of saying that the Bible is the the sole Jesus is our sole authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice We're going to come to the Bible, don't worry. For those of you that are currently sitting there very nervous, going, what's he doing? Don't worry about it, we'll get there, trust me. Why does this matter? Because 
A meaningful relationship with a real Jesus is supposed to be the basis on which we experience, as someone has said, a life of joy and hope, awe and wonder. Or in other words, the good life we all long for springs first from a meaningful relationship with a real Jesus. That's the basis on which we begin all of this conversation about what it means to be a Baptist. First of all, this stuff. Jesus and nothing else. And let me say that what I'm not pointing to here is a, just Jesus and me and my wee buddy, the two of us together, we're okay, I don't really need to worry about everybody else. He's definitely your friend. There's definitely an intimacy supposed to be to that relationship. But we need to see Jesus in the whole scope of the biblical revelation. Not just this little cozy Jesus who's going to be there for me when things are rubbish. But actually, as Colossians tells us, he brought the cosmos into being. Everything that was created was created in him, through him, for him, and by him. He is, in Hebrews, the source of all things. And in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is pictured as the perfect revelation of God. You ever wonder what God looks like? Ever wondered what God thinks about something? Ever wondered about God, how God would react towards someone? Go read the Gospels. How did Jesus react towards people? Because he is the perfect revelation of God. And this kind of intimacy that I'm talking about requires a reordering of all of our priorities. It changes the types of relationships we have with others. Think, what do I mean by that? Think about people that you know, who you know walk well with Jesus, right? Think about them. I, I can think of a couple of people. And one of the things I've noticed about those is they ask different kinds of questions. They're more attentive, typically, than others. Because they've reordered, they don't need to be number one. They don't need to be seen to be the important person in a room because Jesus is the important person in the room and they're comfortable in their own skin. That song we sang earlier, Who You Say I Am, the point of it, do we understand who we are? We are children of God because of what Jesus has done. It changes our posture as we live. Our priorities are reordered. This depth of relationship And the recognition of who Jesus is, his primacy, stand at the beginning of any conversation of what it means for us to be Baptist. I'd argue that's true of Episcopalians, of Presbyterians, of Charismatics, of Pentecostals. That if they're not, that they would also want to say that first and foremost we're about Jesus. And I want to honour them for that. So I want to pause just a moment. I'm going to pray because I want us to think about where our space with Jesus. I want us to breathe for a moment and then we're going to go on. And the next three, I promise you, are much, much shorter than that one. But I want us to breathe for a moment. I want you to close your eyes. Um, And it's easy for us to lose this because we're talking about big church things. But this is a moment where I want to ask you, where are you at with Jesus? And the answer to that is okay. Maybe you're like one of those 11 disciples on the mountain in Galilee. Maybe you doubt right now. 
But Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has accomplished something. I would say he he desires a relationship with you. A closer one. Maybe you're doing well with Jesus. What's he calling you into? Maybe you've never in your life given your life to Jesus. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you have doubts. Maybe you are sitting here going, why am I here? I want to tell you that Jesus can meet you exactly where you're at. So just, I'm going to leave some quiet just for a moment. I want you to listen. What, 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 What are the thoughts that spring into your heart? What's your imagination taking you to? And trust that God is speaking to you in that. Father, come and speak to us, I pray. Amen. We're going to move on. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never said, actually, I want to make him Lord of my life, I want to follow you, then at the end of my talk, you'll get the chance to do that. I'm not just, if you want to think about that over the course of the next rest of my talk, there might be nobody here of whom that's true, but I want to make sure that if you've never said, actually, I get this Jesus thing, I want to make him Lord of my life. If you have questions, come to our Alpha course. There'll be lovely cake and coffee and all sorts of things. And there's no, there are some youth, but if you're a young person, you can go to Youth Alpha. And if you're an old person and want to go to Youth Alpha, they'll be nice to you too, and you can have pizza there. But explore those questions. Okay, let's move on. Um, our statement then continues. It says, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. I told you we were going to get to the Bible bit for those of you who were freaking out about what I was saying. I want to say a few things about about this. Jesus as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. So first of all, it has to be the Bible as rightly understood, right? Because some people have treated the Bible in deplorable ways and got it to teach all sorts of evil things over many, 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 many years. So we need to be clear that we mean the Bible as rightly understood. I want to suggest there's two keys to that. The first is Jesus. You'll not be surprised to hear me say that. The first is Jesus. If we're looking at a passage we find difficult, looking at a passage we're struggling with, my answer, my question to you would be, have you brought Jesus to this text? Have we brought what we know about Jesus from the rest of the text to this text? Does it make more sense now? If not, my suggestion then is go and find somebody smarter than you are. That's typically what, what we do. And that person who's smarter, typically therefore, isn't actually smarter. They've just maybe had a chance to read a bit more. And what we are then doing is moving into the second key for that, I think, which is that we realize that we are not the first people to have read the Bible. Okay? People have been reading the New Testament as it's constituted for about 2,000 years now. And so we go back and we say, how has the church understood this text over those millennia? And we will then have some clarity. Do you know what? There's still going to be Bible passages you will come to and you go, I don't know what to do with that. Here's the answer. You've got to learn to be okay with that. 
I think mature faith finds the place to say there's still a place for mystery. I haven't got it all buttoned down. I don't understand why Paul wrote it this way or why James wrote this or why the book of Jude is even in the Bible. You know, like things like that. We can ask those questions and sit there and we've got to be good with it. Because our faith is not in the Bible, our faith is in Jesus Christ. Um, and we, so, so the Bible is rightly understood. The Bible as the entire scripture narrative. So we must never just siphon off bits of the Bible that we decide we like and therefore ignore the rest. You know, we have a habit sometimes of we prefer the New Testament because it's got the nice squishy God than Jesus and we don't like the Old Testament because that's that big fiery God back there and we don't like him. Well, I've got news for you. It's the same God all the way through and he has been revealing himself the same way. And if you're interested in that, we have a seven-week Bible study, Bible study, a seven-week sermon series that we did earlier this year. You can find it on our website and go and have a listen to it. It's called Storylines. And the whole point of it is God has always been on mission. He's always been, ever since Genesis chapter 3, he has been about redeeming all of creation. Um, but Genesis chapter 3, very importantly, the fall is not the beginning of the story. What is the beginning of the story? Does anyone remember? Creation. And it was good. That's the beginning of the story. And it is also the end of the story. But that's enough for today. The Bible as the entire scripture narrative, not as one or two proof texts. Um, I want to submit to you something I've come across recently uh, that's come out of India, uh, which is really exciting for me because actually there's a whole lot of exciting theology and practice that's been done in the global south that we're beginning to learn from. Because do you know what? There are more Christians now not in Western Europe and North America than in anywhere else. So Christianity in the next 10 years will be an Eastern and African religion, not a Western white religion. Like... Like those of us who are white males have dominated Christianity for a long time, we are no longer the dominant face of Christianity. I think the average, if you, if how they, there's people do these things, and I've now forgotten the name of the organisation, but the average uh, Christian looks like a 15-year-old African woman. Uh, now that's the way it works out. That there are, um, and you know that that mean that includes uh, the fact that there's still the massive rise of the church in China. Uh, the church in Africa continues to grow apace and there's lots of really other exciting pockets of things that God's doing around the world. It's not, it's not white. And the exciting thing for us is we get to learn from that because we're in a place where the church is in decline here. And that's just true. It's sad, but it's true. So what can we learn? Well, there's this Bible study process that's come out of uh, India and I love it because it doesn't allow us just to end up sitting there going oh, this is like a really nice idea and we come up with a clever thought in our head and we go, that's great, that's fine, I'll go on about the rest of my day. That it actually asks us to do something. Here's what, it's, what they do. They ask the same three questions every time that they do it. How will you obey this passage? Is the first question. I love that. I mean, how, how challenging is that? How will you obey this passage? How will you train with this passage? Oh, sorry, who will you train with this passage? In other words, where are you going to take it and share it with someone else? And the third one is, with whom will you share your story or God's story? There's no way you can... And then the whole point is you come back together with your group next week and you begin by saying, all right, so how did you obey? Who did you train? Who did you tell your story to? There's a built-in... Uh, 
Accountability, that's the word I was looking for, thank you. And the exciting thing about that is it started with one guy, a guy called Benjamin Francis, and he, was, he did this with a small group, and then he thought, oh, we should go and do this somewhere. So he went out to some villages in northern India, and uh, they went into the village and they found what they called the person of peace, a guy who was happy for them to come into their house and they sat down and they had a meal and they said, oh, can we share the Bible with you? And the guy's like, yeah, 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 but wait a minute, I'm going to go and get my friends. And so the friends come around, they do these three questions and they plant a church, like basically that day. And he hangs around for a week and makes sure that they know how to do the feedback part. So he stays and they do the feedback bit. And he's like, that's good, you're fine now, on you go, see you later. And off he toddles to the next village. Um, they started that, I think, 14 years ago. They now have something like 25,000 churches across India and Southeast Asia. They planted in places like Afghanistan and Iran. Um, astonishing. Astonishing. It would be nice, wouldn't it? No, it's not churches like this. They don't have buildings. They don't have pastors at the front. But they have. They meet. They worship. They teach the Bible. They take communion. Incredible stuff. Absolutely incredible stuff. The scriptures are the key to it. Well, Jesus is the key to it. The scriptures are what they use to understand who Jesus is. Move on. Next one is... It says, Each church has liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer his laws. I could be here for ages. This is a really critical one for us. It's why our structure works as it does. We don't have bishops that oversee and tell every church what to do because we believe each church has liberty to decide on its own. It's why we have church meetings. We don't have church meetings to do business. That's why they're not called business meetings. They're called church meetings because business meetings are about where we talk about budgets and exciting things like that. And We have to do those, right? They're really important. Oscar demand that we do them. The government need us to do them. It's good practice and we want to do them well. But the church meeting part is far more important because it's at that that we're expressing this peculiar thing and it is peculiar because this is not like other traditions actually for us to say each church has liberty and I want to reinforce that that word church is there because it doesn't say each individual has liberty to decide how things go and that is profoundly countercultural for the world that we live in To say you belong to this church is to say that together, and we're going to talk about what membership is in a couple of weeks' time, but it means that together we are serving one another and receiving, being served too. But one of that, what that means is I don't get to just decide on my own what I think about something. We submit it to the whole body, and the whole body decides under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We're about to come to the Holy Spirit in a moment. Does that make sense? It's not individuals deciding, oh, I think this is a good idea, I think that's a bad idea. No, actually, we have liberty, but as a church. And then the final one, the Holy Spirit. It's quite funny trying to find a picture for the Holy Spirit. I was a bit like, oh, it was taking me a while. And then I thought, fire, fire. That makes sense, right? Book of Acts. Clever. John chapter 16, uh, verses 13 to 15, say this. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will, rec- that he will receive what he will make known to you. 
All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me and what he will make known to you. This is profoundly important um, and yet a little mysterious. Uh, and maybe next year we're going to do a, little, a series on, on the Holy Spirit, his gifts, his um, empowerment, his fruit. Uh, and it takes a lot of time. But I, I want to say a couple of things about the Holy Spirit because people get freaked out as soon as we talk about Holy Spirit and think, oh, what does that mean? What, what are we doing? Actually, one of the most profound things we're saying in this context is this is not about our best efforts. This is not about me thinking the best I possibly can. This is not about you behaving in the best way you possibly can, but us being guided or led or governed by the Holy Spirit. So when we gather together as a church to make decisions, exercising that liberty part from a moment ago, this isn't some sort of democratic process. Those seem to be out of fashion at the moment. But um, this isn't a... Sorry. Um, This isn't a democratic process. This is not one member, one vote. This isn't anything like that at all. Instead, we're trying to gather together to discern the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Or as it's sometimes put, to discern the mind of Christ. That is what we're doing. When we do church meetings, we're gathering to discern the mind of Christ. That is what we're trying to do. But the Spirit doesn't just lead us so that the church runs properly. The Spirit leads us so that we become more like Jesus. And that's the reason you and I should be ever more surrendered to the Holy Spirit, listening for what it is that he's saying, looking for opportunities to put ourselves in a posture where we can hear what he says, where we can be led and guided by him. Because, as it says in John 16, his He is there to glorify Jesus, which takes us back to the beginning, to Jesus. And so we want to surrender ourselves to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And our next preaching series, the one that we're going to be doing uh, through October and November called Unforced Rhythms of Grace, is all about us learning some habits, some practices, some rhythms that can help us to be under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. To be led into a place where we know Jesus more, where we have more intimacy, where we see Jesus more, where we are transformed more into the likeness of Jesus. And so that, I want to finish with this. I have no stronger conviction than Jesus is real. No better encouragement for you than Jesus is real. No better pastoral advice for you than Jesus is real. Your choice is what you want to do with that. We've begun this series, what does it mean to be Baptist? The beginning and I want to say the end of being Baptist is the conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord, God, and Saviour. Everything else is extra. That's the beginning and the end of it. What will you do with that?